Well, good morning. Simon of Cyrene. We're going to take a look this morning at the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and take a look uh, and see a picture of a man named Simon from Cyrene. And if you would, just read along with me as we see this first slide this morning. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. It's probably Thursday of the Passion Week, probably sometime in the morning in Jerusalem. Sometimes people have talked about this cross that Jesus, that Jesus bore and that Simon eventually would carry to the place of the, the cross, the, 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 the place of Golgotha. But sometimes we carry crosses as well. And our crosses, crosses look different. They are comprised of sacrifice, of, of discomfort. They're sometimes comprised of suffering and persecution. Different for all of us, but all of us carry them. Carrying the cross is the calling of every authentic and true follower of Jesus Christ. So it's just a matter of recognizing I'm going to carry a cross and to do it with authenticity. It is the cost of true discipleship. It is the cost of following Jesus Christ. Cyrene was located in what is today modern-day um, uh, Libya uh, on, the, on the African continent. It was about 900 miles from Jerusalem, and in the first century it would take uh, several weeks to go from, from that location to Jerusalem. And so descendants of Ham, the Hamite people, were black-skinned, and therefore it leads to the possibility that Simon was uh, a black man very likely a Jew, coming from Jerusalem now, this 900-mile journey to celebrate the Passover. It was a large Jewish community also in this, in this area of Cyrene. And as Old Testament believers and as Jews at that time, they embraced uh, many aspects of the law. And in Isaiah 53, I'm sure Simon was familiar with this passage, Surely he hath borne our griefs, and he's carried our sorrows, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all of us. What can we learn from Simon? We know that Simon leaves a spiritual legacy with his children. We catch this insight from, um, from actually from Paul's writing in Romans chapter 16. As he's giving salutations towards the end of the chapter, he refers to several people, but he then, then he concludes in verse 13, and he says this. Salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord, his mother and mine. Simon's family had come to Christ. And it was because of, I believe, the contact that, that Simon had with Jesus on that uh, eventful day that Simon passed on that faith to his children who are now being referred as the Apostle Paul as someone who de de deserves to be saluted in their service to Christ. Even Simon's wife came to the aid of Paul on occasions as Paul would travel on his missionary journeys and she would help care for him. So they had come to Christ in a marvelous way. And in this next slide, it's a, it's a beautiful rendition, if you will, of an artist who's painted this uh, actual scene, if you would, uh, from his rendition, thinking of, of what it would like, look like possibly to carry that cross of Christ. It was not the cross itself, but it was the cross beam. The larger piece of wood would already be at the place of at Golgotha. And the cross was placed on Christ as he walked through the streets of Jerusalem with the jeering and the, 
the uh, flaunting and the ridicule and the disgraceful things that were said to him. But when he came to that gate, he staggered under the pressure of carrying it for so long and having a sleepless night in which he was scourged and flogged and spent a night in false trials. And he fell and collapsed under the weight of that beam. And for some interesting reason that only God knows, Simon was chosen from amongst that crowd to carry that cross. Matthew 27, 32 says that Simon was singled out, and some translations say this, that he was forced, or he was compelled, or even a more literal translation is he was pressed into service for the king. Now, he didn't know which king it would be, the king of Rome or the king of kings, the king of Israel. But as Simon was walking into this country from Libya, Jesus was walking out of this city, both going opposite directions, but now both of them meeting for the very first time. Luke 23, 26 tells us that regarding the cross that was placed now upon Simon, it reads that the cross was on Simon to carry behind Jesus. Simon walked behind our Lord, and he bore the weight and burden of this cross, hearing all the things that were being said about the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And in the midst of all that, to hear the lamenting and the tears and the mourning of those who love Jesus. And also, as a part of that, he heard the prophetic and powerful things that Jesus said in that walk to the cross. And he never will forget those things, I'm sure. I, I can't prove any of this, but in this next slide, it's a meeting that, 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 that Simon had with Christ at that very moment when he was selected to carry the crossbeam. And I'm sure their eyes met for the very first time. And I can only imagine what that might be. Now, it's possible it didn't happen, but I can't help but think it did happen. And as they, their eyes kind of locked, I, I think that Simon looked in the eyes of Christ and he didn't see uh, the eyes of a guilty man. He didn't see the eyes of a man who was angry. He didn't see the eyes of a man who was defeated, but he saw in the eyes of the Christ, he saw the eyes of an incredible and powerful determination to get to Golgotha, to pay the penalty for my sins and for your sins and for our sins. I know sometimes when I perform wedding ceremonies to look into the eyes of those who are getting married and, and as they share their love and as they kiss, sometimes I have to turn my eyes because I feel like I'm not privy to this sort of thing. But it's such a special moment and Simon locked eyes with Christ. And, and I can't help but think that as Simon went the rest of the way to, to uh, the place of the skull, the, uh, the hill of Golgotha, that as he laid that beam down and in Jesus' exhaustive state, I can't help but think maybe Jesus as he began to, before the nails were placed in his hands and feet, Jesus said, Simon, thank you. Thank you, Simon. Paul says it really well in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings becoming like him in his death. You know, relationships are forged, aren't they, by sharing adversity and hardships and sufferings together. That's what really locks us into one another. We can be sure that Jesus was so grateful to Simon on that day, so relieved that Simon was there to help him so that he could reach his goal of redeeming humanity from the penalty of sin and the suffering that sin brings. 
and as a result, to bring hope and life and purpose and meaning to all of us. Luke says in chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. As followers of Christ or those who are considering following Christ, you need to be aware that you will have to carry a cross. You'll have to deny yourself in order to follow Jesus Christ. How can I carry my cross or my cross as successfully as Simon did? I think one of the secrets is just simply this, is stay near to the cross, stay near to Christ. Do whatever you need to in your life and whatever I need to do in my life to desperately pursue the things of God so that when those crosses come into my life, when those times of suffering and those times of denial and persecution, those times of anguish and lamenting come, I'm prepared for them. I'm ready for them. We are to come joyfully to this place of accepting the cross because we know the reward is so amazing, it's so everlasting. We can learn several lessons from Simon of Cyrene, and here's a few of them. We know that Simon leaves a spiritual family legacy, and the lesson there is don't neglect your family. Don't take them for granted. Make that phone call today. Write that letter. Make that visit. Do whatever you can within your power to restore relationship. We also learn that Simon was walking into the country, and Jesus was walking out of the city going opposite directions when God brought them together. The lesson, welcome God's divine interruptions. Welcome them, embrace them, because God is up to something. And don't miss the blessing that that will will create. Simon walked behind the Lord, bearing the cross. The lesson is to stay focused upon him. Keep him before you. Follow him. Obey him. Fear him. Revere him. Remain in him. Abide in him but don't walk away. Just as Simon called the Lord's cross, carried the Lord's cross, again, we're also called to relieve others of their difficulties, being Christ for them in their time of need. And the lesson there is, once again, bearing one another's burdens. Simon of Cyrene, in the wrong place at the wrong time or in the right place at the right time. Our Father, I thank you for the privilege to share for a few moments from uh, this man. Lord, we thank you for Simon, Lord, for the, the, the stance that he was willing to take once he bore that cross. I'm sure he would have gladly done it again. But Lord, as difficult as it was as well, God, thank you for Simon as faithfulness. May we bear our crosses in honor to you today and by your grace tomorrow in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite things to do this time of year is to uh, just take a different path to church every time I drive and go different streets so I can count how many yard signs I see. There's such a great way for us to get the Easter message out. But do you remember that in the account of the first Easter, there's a sign in the middle of that account as well? No, there wasn't a a, uh, yard sign at the tomb uh, announcing that the, the tomb was empty. But we see that there is a a sign mentioned in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John 19, verse 19. And Pilate posted a sign on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, so that many people could read it. Then the leading priests objected and said to Pilate, 
Change it from the king of the Jews to, to, to he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, no, what I have written, I have written. So this is the first Easter sign. And uh, we have an image here that gives us some idea of what it might have looked like. Uh, there are, are many aspects of this sign that we could talk about this morning and, and why it appears, it's important enough to appear in all four of the Gospels. But I want to look at, at two truths that this sign reveals to us about God and about how his desire to reach the world. And the first one is that God uses the most unlikely people. Who was it that God used to author this sign? It was Pontius Pilate. And what was Pilate's intent with the sign? Well, What he really intended to communicate was, uh, this is what becomes of a Jewish king. Uh, This is what Romans do to a Jewish king. The the king of the Jews is a crucified criminal. He wanted to proclaim that to mock the Jews and to mock Jesus and to threaten them. But God had something else in mind with this sign. The sign would be used to bring people to Jesus. Now remember the the two criminals uh, that hung on the crosses uh, next to Jesus in Luke 23. Verse 39, we read, One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, So you're the Messiah, Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, Don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you today that you will be with me in paradise. Now, the, the words are familiar, so it doesn't even stand out to us the choice of this criminal's, this thief's words. Notice he doesn't plead, uh, save me, Jesus, or, or Jesus, have mercy on my soul. His appeal is, Jesus, remember me when you come into your what? In your kingdom. Well, why does he refer to Jesus' kingdom? Where did he get that, that concept that uh, Jesus would have a kingdom? Uh, maybe he heard Jesus' teaching. Maybe he had uh, listened to Jesus speak. But uh, it seems more likely that the, where he came from that was he read the sign that Pilate had placed above Jesus on the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And Luke makes this connection very clear. When you, when you read the passage in Luke, in verse 38 of, of, verse, of Luke 23, The the verse preceding the account of the criminals that I just read, Luke points out, a sign was fastened above him with these words, this is the king of the Jews. And then he goes into the account of the criminals. Four quick verses later, we read that plea of the thief. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You see, the thief, as he hangs on the cross, he he realizes that uh, he's in in a royal mess. And he turns his head and he reads the royal proclamation. And so he makes a, a, a royal request for help. If, if that's so, if this connection is there, then this was the first tool used to, to spread the word about Jesus. There are many tools that have come since then. The, the printing press, music, uh, radio, uh, TV, movies, internet, social media, uh, uh, crusades at stadiums, uh, Easter services at grandstands at the Fairplex and and yard signs. But a crude wooden sign preceded all of them. And it seems because of that sign, a soul was saved. Imagine with me for a moment what it was like for this uh, thief to uh, be welcomed into heaven by the angel welcoming team. 
as he comes into heaven, I could just picture him uh, being so thankful for this sign that uh, caught his attention and, and, and led him to this thought about requesting this from Jesus. And, and I can hear him asking the, the angels, you know, uh, who, what, which of the disciples was it that, that was responsible for putting that sign on the cross? Was it the, was it the one that was there with, with uh, Jesus' mother? Uh, I think his name was John. Was it him? Or which, which one was it? Because when they get to heaven, I want to thank them for putting it on there. And the angel responds, uh, well, uh, 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 Mr. Uh, Thief, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it, it, it wasn't one of the disciples. Uh, it was actually, it was, it was Pilate, Pontius Pilate. Imagine his surprise. And the, the angel then continues, you know, uh, you're really surprised about this, but we're not surprised any longer about this. You should see all the stories we hear up here time after time. How God uh, uh, calls Moses uh, through a burning bush. How, how God spoke to a prophet through a donkey. How God uh, got Jonah's attention through a big fish. Time after time, God uses the most unlikely people to speak to people. The thief is led by one who didn't even believe in Christ. God uses the most unlikely people to spread the news about Jesus, and he's still doing the same thing today. It's surprising to us, but from heaven's perspective, it isn't surprising at all. How many times, though, do we limit God by thinking, well, God can use other people to, to spread his word, to bring people to him. Maybe uh, those who are older or those who are younger or, or those people who have it all together, the people who have all the answers, but, but not people, unlikely people like, like me. God wants to use unlikely people. The first Easter sign reminds us that God uh, could use Pilate and a sign that he put up to, to mock Jesus and his followers. Imagine what he can do through unlikely people who are seeking to follow after him and follow his direction. Let's use the, the Easter signs of today to remind us that God wants to use us, unlikely people like you and me, to reach people for Christ. And secondly, God speaks your language. Notice that uh, when, when uh, the sign was put up, it was put in uh, Latin, Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. The gr- three great languages of that time so that everyone who saw it could have it in their own language. Hebrew was the language of the Jews, the language of religion. Uh, Latin was the language of the Romans, the, la- uh, the language of the law and the government. And uh, Greek was the language of Greece that was the language of culture of that time. And so God, uh, that sign spoke one message. God spoke one message through the sign, but he spoke it in these different languages so that all could understand. The lesson of this sign is that God will speak your language. I don't mean language as far as a dialect or something like that, but God will speak your day-to-day language so that you can understand and respond to him. I don't know what it is that brought you here today, but God wants to speak your language. We read in Isaiah 30, 21, your own ears will hear him. Right behind you, a voice will say, this is the way you should go, whether to the right or to the left. Maybe you have felt or heard that other people, God speaks to them, but, but they must know some kind of religious language or they must have a different background. Well, God wants to speak to you. He brought you here this morning because he wants to speak to you. Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let's take a moment right now to respond to what God is saying to us in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the promise in Jeremiah 29 that when we pray, you will listen. And when we seek you wholeheartedly, we will find you. 
Thank you for speaking our language, for sending Jesus to reveal yourself truly and fully to us. We pray that you would use unlikely people like us to reach someone this week to draw them near to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, uh, in Mark 11, uh, starting in verse 1, it's Jesus coming in on Palm Sunday. And I figure if we're going to have Palm Sunday, we should talk about it. And so Jesus, think about, you ever notice that uh, following Jesus pretty much destroys our comfort zones? You ever notice that? He's like, oh, I I know when it's God because I'm pretty comfortable with it. Then that's probably not God. And I know that when you say, oh, I went this far, but it seems like God always takes it to the next. What do I mean? It's like this. Jesus looks at two of his disciples and says, I need you to go to that next village. See it right there? Yeah, you're going to go and you're going to bank a right. And when you get there, you're going to see this colt. It's never been ridden. This colt of a donkey. You're going you're to untie it, and then you're going to bring it back. And then if anybody says, hey, what are you doing with our colt? Just say, hey, the Lord needs it. Can you imagine applying that today? Like when you walk out of the church, it's like, I like their car better than mine. And so you begin to jimmy the lock and open it up, and they come around. What are you doing? The Lord has need of this today. I believe that your Maserati is much nicer than my not Maserati. I don't want to put anybody in cars. <laughs> and so they go. It says they went. And I would have done the first part. But I don't know. But let's be honest. When you turn the corner, it's, in my mind, I'm like, oh, I really hope there's no cult. I'm really hoping. Oh, crud, there's a cult. Now I got to actually untie that thing. You know why he sent two? Because you never would have done it alone. And so you walk up, you and your buddy, you're like, ah, oh. and then so it's like, okay, watch. These are the first thieves in the name of Jesus. Okay, take the colt. And they untie it, and then someone comes out. What are you doing with the colt? What did he say? What did Jesus say? What did he say? I wasn't listening. Oh, oh. the Lord has need of it? Oh, okay. Oh my gosh, it works. And then you walk it off. You get back to Jesus and you start throwing your, your cloaks on it. And as you walk, now catch, catch this. In Jerusalem, there'd be a couple hundred thousand people normally. But around the Passover time, as it gets closer to Passover, there'd be in the upwards of one million people filling the city. And all of a sudden, Jesus sits on this colt. It's never been ridden. And as he begins to walk, all of a sudden, people start noticing him and droves come out. And they're throwing palm branches and they're throwing their cloaks so that this colt can walk on. And you would say, why are they doing this? To throw down palm branches, palm branches is this sign of honor to a king or honor to someone who's in high, who's in high esteem. But where did they come up with it? Because about 520 B.C., it was written... Zechariah wrote this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of king. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Just let that sink in for a second. A couple months ago, I, I preached a message and I, I came up with this idea that as I've been looking through scripture, I really truly believe that the main point, if you were to sum up the whole Bible into one tweet, it would be this, God with us, that we might be with him. And even in Zechariah, it talks about your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, catch this, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a donkey. I've never seen in movies a general come riding in on a donkey. They come in on this huge stallion. Well, you have to remember in that day, if, if, if Jesus were going off to war, he'd ride the horse. But what was the purpose of a donkey? 
See, the king would ride the donkey when there's peace to proclaim. And by coming in on a donkey, he's saying, I'm bringing peace with me. Yeah, Friday, there's going to be this battle. But right now, I need to declare to everyone that I, your king, am riding in on this colt, and I bring with me peace. And as people are seeing him, they all just start screaming. They start saying these things that point to their understanding that we really do believe this to be the Messiah. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The word Hosanna means what? It doesn't mean praise the Lord. What it means is save now, save now, save us now. Why would they scream that out? Because they're tired of Rome. They're tired of being oppressed and they're tired of bondage and they want to be free. And in their minds, they always pictured the Messiah, this king figure coming to free them from Rome to set up an earthly kingdom and to rule. You ever ask God, God, where are you? Why is it taking you so long? And you ever thought that you knew exactly how God would fix the problem and then he didn't do it that way? But the way that he did it brought about so much more. See, they wanted an earthly king to set up an earthly kingdom. And Jesus riding on this colt is coming in saying, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something even better. I'm going to make sure that you can have peace with God. I'm bringing salvation, not just for you, but for the world. And then it's weird. I never saw this until I was looking at it last night. That in verse 11, it says that he entered Jerusalem, went into the temple, and when he looked around at everything, it's like, why would you do that? It's late. Like the, the final stop is he goes into the temple and looks around. It says he looks at everything. I never even noticed that. It's like, that's just like one of those little side notes, or is it? Why would Jesus go into the temple and look at everything? And it doesn't say, but what if it's like this? What if it's like, okay, it's Sunday, and by this time next Sunday... Oh, it's all changed. By this time, next Sunday, the temple, not necessary. By this time, next Sunday, the sacrifice will have been made on Friday. And by this time, next Sunday, I will rise from the dead. What if Jesus goes into the temple and draws the line in the sand and says, this is where it starts. And I will go and I will do what is necessary that I might be with them and they with me. The whole purpose and looking around was to say, by this time, next week, the next time I see the temple after my sacrifice, everything changes. Guys, we live in the reality of that. Like today, we live in the reality of the joy that comes with knowing what Palm Sunday's about. Jesus coming and declaring, yeah, I'm going to bring peace. I'm bringing it with me. I will take the sacrifice. I will die for the sin of the world. And I will come back from the dead and beat death in the face that my people can be with me where I am. See, maybe the whole point of him going to the temple was to just let him know then maybe he showed up right at 3 p.m. that last sacrifice, the second sacrifice, there'd be two in a day, one in the morning, one in the evening. 
And what if he walked in and he saw the sacrifice and I wonder if it weighed on him, the anxiety and the terror that came with that sacrifice points to what I will go through, that I will take on the full and complete wrath of the God of the universe that they may know me, but I will go. Why? For God so loved the world that he gave. What if he showed up and that's where the sacrifice was and he could see it and he could smell it and says, I gladly take that. Why? God with us that we might be with him. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you walked into the temple and you looked at everything and then you did everything necessary that we might know you. And may that never be ordinary to us. May that always be something that just drives us nuts. It's just too good to be true. And God, as we live in the reality of the gospel, may that thought keep coming to our minds. This is too good to be true. And to hear you say, now you're finally starting to get it. The gospel is too good to be true. God, thank you for the theme of your scriptures. God, with us, that we might be with you. God, we love you. And as we sing to you and praise you, to you be all the praise, all the glory and all the honor, for you alone are worthy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone says, amen. Amen. Well, about two Christmases ago, my husband and I decided that this was the year that we were going to get healthy. You know, it's, it's the end of the year. You're looking to the new year. You're making those resolutions. This was the year we're going to lose weight. We're going to do it. We made this resolution before. Um, We've made this resolution since, okay? Uh, But this is the year we're going to do it. And my husband said, I have the key to our success, okay? I have found it. This is going to propel us into fitness. I found it. It's the bike, okay? And this isn't just any exercise bike. It's not a stationary bike. This is like a special wind fan bike, okay? When my husband was in college, he went to USC. He worked for the football team. And he said this was the bike that they would put all the athletes on when they were out of shape and overweight. So this is what we need to do. So we're going to get this, this bike. So the bike comes, I don't know if you guys can see it here. I have a picture, but the bike comes and I get on it a couple of times. And let me just tell you, it's not easy. Okay. It's not the kind of bike where you hold it, hold the handles and you pedal. You have to actually move your arms. And then that fan, I thought the fan would help cool you off. It actually builds resistance. So it makes it even harder. Okay. So my husband and I, we have this wonderful tool and it ends up kind of just sitting in the garage. Does anybody have an extra? You don't have to raise your hand. Okay. But it ends up sitting in the garage, kind of collecting dust. You lay your clothes on it, you know, when you want them to dry and you don't want to put them in the dryer. So recently though, my husband said, you know what? I'm getting, I'm getting on the bike. We're going to do this thing. So he's been getting on the bike and you know, that actually helps you if somebody else is working out too. So I said, you know what? I've been hearing about all these exercise regimes where in an hour you can burn like 800 to a thousand calories. So what if I ride the bike for a, for one hour? What if I burn a thousand calories? So I get on the bike recently and I'm trying to pedal. And as I mentioned, it's very, very challenging because you have to pedal and use your arms. And so I'm looking down and I've been going for a really long time or it feels like a really long time. And I look down and I see the number one and I think, oh, no wonder I've already gone a mile. And then through the beads of sweat, I realize that's actually a 10th of a mile. And I haven't gone for very long. I've actually only gone for six 
minutes. So I get very, very discouraged, and I get off the bike, my legs feel like jello, and my husband comes in, he's like, what happened? I thought you were going to work out for an hour, and I said, I'm so tired, I can't do this, you know, and it's that situation where you're, you're, you have no discipline, you're weak, and you just give up. And that's what happened to me with with the bike. And then as I look at this passage in Mark of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, I think of his disciples. I feel like that's how they felt. They just gave up. Um, They couldn't keep awake and pray with him for one hour. But Jesus stood strong and didn't give in to temptation and faced death and took on the sins of the world. So Mark 14 says they went to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane was one of Jesus' favorite places to pray. Um, It's a garden at the foot of the Mount, the Mount of Olives. The name actually means oil press, which reflects how Jesus was poured out like oil for us. Um, and Jesus said to his disciples, picking up in verse 32, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. So as we see Jesus going to pray, he demonstrates his desire for for two things. The first is God's fellowship. Verse 35 says that he fell to the ground. So normally men during this time when they would pray, they would stand and raise their arms and that's how they would pray. So falling to the ground was like a lament. It showed anguish, it showed suffering, it showed humility, and he's demonstrating his need for his father. He cries out to God, Abba, Father, which in Aramaic means daddy. That was the word that young children would use when they were speaking to their fathers. It shows respect, but it shows trust, like a childlike trust in daddy. So here we see Jesus in this private agony, this this psychological anguish he's going through before he goes through the physical suffering of the cross. Because he knows this isn't just death. It's a painful and the most shameful form of death. And he is going to take on the sins of the world. So he begs of his father, Daddy, I know it's possible for you to do this another way. But if you still want me to do it, I will do it. He did not he did not want to die, but he didn't give in to temptation. And if we read down into verses 41 and 42, his betrayer arrives and he faces them and he submits to his father's will. But we also see in this passage that Jesus desired human fellowship. His three closest friends, Peter, James, and John. When we're going through a difficult time, don't we often want our friends with us? We want people that know us, that love us, that care about us. We want them with us. Maybe not necessarily to give us advice or to even tell us about a time in their life when they were experiencing pain, but just to be with us because they know us and they love us. Um, When I was 18, my father died and my um, father's dearest friends, um, who were like family, second parents to me, they came over and just sat with me. Um, And just sitting with me in an empty house, and it just felt so sad and quiet. But their presence seemed to soothe my grief in some, some way. So Jesus asks his friends to stay awake and pray three times. And three times he comes back and he finds them sleeping. To sleeping. To sleep meant that they had stopped praying. To sleep meant that they were not being attentive. To sleep meant that they had failed him. So Peter, James, and John, these three men, his best friends, who if you look in previous verses, they, Peter says, I would never deny you, Lord. These same friends, they couldn't stay awake and sit with him for one single hour. 
They were so weak. They were physically and mentally drained. But Jesus knew their weaknesses, and despite that, he still loved them, and he wanted them with him. And so in this period of greatest agony and suffering, he understands the importance of human fellowship. This is a photo of my mom and my great-uncle Louis. He will turn 90 years old in a week. And Uncle Louis is a retired barrister, a high court judge. He has uh, dedicated his life um, t- in the pursuit of justice and um, defending human rights. He was even knighted by the Queen of England for his service. He's one of those people when you're around him, you don't really know what to say because you know they're just so brilliant. So, um, But he was also really instrumental in the founding of an organization called Amnesty International. And he represented Amnesty at Nelson Mandela's very first first trial. Um, And so I'd like to share part of a letter that Nelson Mandela wrote to Amnesty on behalf of my uncle. And this is from June 1962. And he says, Dear Sir, we are most grateful to your organization for sending Mr. Louis Blom Cooper to attend the trial. His mere presence, as well as the assistance he gave, was a source of tremendous inspiration and encouragement to us. The fact that he sat next to us furnished yet another proof that honest and upright men and democratic organizations throughout the civilized world are on our side in the struggle for a democratic South Africa. So I asked my uncle if he was part of Nelson Mandela's legal team or defended him in the trial, and he said, no, I just sat behind him during the trial. So it wasn't necessarily that he ha- uh, brought his legal expertise or some written declaration from the, the British government. He just sat behind Nelson Mandela during the trial. But his presence demonstrated that he was standing with him in the fight for freedom and equality. This letter writes of his mere presence being a source of inspiration and encouragement. So that's what Jesus needed from his friends on this agonizing night, their mere presence. So what does that mean for us in our community, in our context here in 2016? How do we keep watch with Jesus for one hour? How do we sit and be present with Jesus? We can be a presence in the lives of others when they're experiencing loss or anguish or grief. We can be present for someone in need, even if we don't know them very well. Jesus gave us these words in Matthew, Matthew 25, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And jumping down to verse 40, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So when we sit and keep watch with someone in need, it's as if as we're doing it with him and for him. Let's pray. Lord, help us to have ears that are sensitive um, to hear when someone's in need and hearts that are empathetic. Lord, may our voices speak your words of encouragement. May our um, arms be your arms of unconditional and compassionate love. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you ever feel like, do you ever feel like you have a moment in life and and all of a sudden you show up and maybe you're missing what's actually going on? And maybe it's in hindsight, you look back and you go, man, you know, I, I was supposed to give a presentation at that meeting and everyone looked at me and I wasn't ready. 
Or maybe, maybe you, you're like me and, and you're kind of a, a slower husband. And so your wife, I, I've had these moments before where Sarah and I will be sitting at a table and, and maybe it's time to go. And, you know, I'm kind of like a talker all the time. And so, I'm, you know, it's like 11 p.m. or midnight and we have to get up early the next morning. To, so sometimes Sarah will like, like gently like nudge me under the table. You know, maybe kick me just as a way of like, hey, Eric, it's time to kind of wrap this up. And I've said this before. It was early in our marriage and I shouldn't lie, I still do it. And so she's sitting there and, and, and she'll kick me out of the table. And sometimes like, I'm just so oblivious. I'm like, hey, babe, are you okay? Like, is everything okay? You all right? And she's like, um, are you kidding me? You're outing me right now in front of everyone? And I'm like, I, I don't know. And I just kind of keep on going. You know what I mean? Or, or maybe you've been at a soccer game and maybe you're like, you're like rooting your kid on. And all of a sudden, like you're finding yourself on the line and you're wanting to cuss. You know what I mean? Or you're wanting to like yell at the ref and you're like, am I kind of missing this a little bit? Like, I don't know if you were here, but my, my son, this was his very first morning singing in the cherubs choir. Okay. This is like the cool. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So he's like right here and he's singing with his whole heart. And I'm literally right here. And I have like seriously cut off a few parents at this point. I'm a pastor here, but I've cut off a few parents and I'm trying to get the best view. And I'm like trying to coach him. And at one point he's sitting here and he's just kind of like staring at the screen. He's like, Oh, there's myself. He's just kind of staring at himself. And I'm like, Charlie, get back in the game. Get back in the game. This is your moment. Your grandparents are watching you get back. And then I go, you know, maybe I've missed it. Maybe I've missed it. And here's the danger of this week. The danger is that you and I could completely miss what this week is all about that we could buy enough candy for our kids. We could get that perfect outfit. We could make all the plans for after and completely miss what this week is all about. And in Luke chapter 15, Jesus has this group of people around him. And it's really interesting because for maybe one of the first few times in the gospel of Luke, he is surrounded by sinners and tax collectors on this side. And then he's got religious people and Pharisees on this side. And it's really interesting because somehow Jesus was able to hang out in atmospheres where sinners and tax collectors wanted to be and religious people were curious about him. And so Jesus has this idea to tell them this story. And I think Jesus has been waiting to tell this specific story because this story helps us to not miss what this season is all about. It keeps us, it protects us from missing what this week is all about. And so Jesus has these two groups of people and they're gathered. And what's amazing about this is, can you imagine if you were like categorized as like the sinners? Like what if like, you know, Jesus or, you know, some people are coming up to you and you're like, hey, so, so what, what group are you with? You're like, mm, with the sinners over there. Like, how would you feel, right? But for some reason, this group of sinners, the techlers, they're in the exact same place. And then Jesus tells this story. And this story tells us what Easter is all about. About. Jesus begins the story this way. He says, there's a dad and he's got two sons. And the younger son at one point comes up to the dad and says, hey, dad, I, I wish you were dead. He says, dad, I, the, the only worth that you are to me is the money that's coming me once you die. And so it'd be easier for all of, all of us if you just died right now and I could have your money. And those first hears of this story, as they were listening and cluing in, this was an incredibly offensive thing that this younger son was saying to his dad. You see, boys never talk to their dads like this, but he said, dad, I want your money. I wish you were dead. And the dad says, okay. And so the dad gives the son this money. And it says he goes off and he, and he spends it on wild living. And there's this, there's this severe famine And all of a sudden he has no money left and he's completely bankrupt. And he's eating 
he gets a job serving pigs, which for a good Jewish boy, you would never serve pigs. But he gets this job and he's, he's serving these pigs. And he's so perplexed at how he got here. And he realizes the gravity of his own depravity. He realizes how broken his life really is. And then in verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. So he did, the younger son did what all of us are tempted to do that when we realize, realize we've missed it. When we realize we're broken. When we realize that God had a standard and we fell beneath it. All of us are tempted to do the exact same thing that this younger son was tempted to do and it was to earn our way back to God. And Jesus wants to tell this story. And the story is important for us leading up into Easter because the temptation is to think that we somehow can earn our way back into God's good graces. The temptation is to think that if we do enough things at that moment, God will love us and accept us. But God is better than that. His love and his truth is greater than that. And so here's this son and he's practicing this speech. He's like, okay, father, I've sinned against heaven. and I've sinned against earth. Would you take me back as a hired servant? He intends to earn his way back into his father's house. Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against earth. I've sinned against you. Would you take me back as a hired servant? Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. And he's practicing this speech. But while he was still a long way off, Father, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you. Father, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you. While he was a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion for him. He wasn't filled with anger, he wasn't filled with shame. He wasn't filled with the desire. Man, I can't wait to show him how much pain he's caused me and our family. No, he's not filled with any of those things. He sees his son who abandoned him, who rejected him, who said, you're, you're, you're more worth to me if you're dead than you are if you're alive. He sees that son and he is filled with compassion for him. And then he runs to his son. He throws his arms around him and he kissed him. You see, dads back in that day, they didn't run. Like they had like this swagger to him. You know what I mean? Like they had this like this kind of cool stroll to him. Like, calm and collected. Not this dad. This dad literally books it. Like he's not power jogging. He's not on his hoverboard. Like he's booking it to his son. And everyone in the village is looking and going, what's this dad doing? Why in the world would he do that? It's because when Jesus tells this story, he wants us to understand that he's the father in this story. That this is a picture of him and it's a picture of us. It's a picture of what he's come to do for us. And so he throws his arms around his son and he kisses him. The son said to him, I love this part. He goes right into the speech. He says, father, I have sinned against heaven. and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But, and I love this, the father interrupts him. Like the father literally says to him, shut up. I know that's offensive. And maybe you haven't heard that at church, but he said, shut up. 
Because you see, this son is just trying to earn his way back. And the father says, you've missed it. You don't understand. That's not what we're about at all. That's not what I'm about. He says, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring me the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. You see, the son on his own found himself in famine. But the father always intended him for feasting. Guys, on our own, we always find ourselves in famine. But God's invitation to us is feasting. And as we close, I want to just look at the three things that this father gives to his son who wants to be a servant. But he gives to his son. Because they're the three things that by the power of the cross and the resurrection we are given by our heavenly father. The first thing he gives to his son is he says, bring the best robe and put it on him. You see the robe back in the first century, back in this culture, was a sign that you had value and worth. A robe was a sign that you mattered. And here's the son who probably didn't have much clothes at all, was used to feeding pigs and doing the most disgraceful things. And he comes back trying to earn his way back into his father's house. And the dad freely gives him a robe. And he says, by doing so, you're worth it. You're valuable to me. See the cross and resurrection they tell us a lot. And one thing they tell us is that we matter to God. That he created us and he designed us and he loves us. The second thing that the father gives to his son is he puts a ring on his finger. And and the ring back in the first century was a sign that you had some leadership role. It was that you had a purpose it was that you had some kind of authority. And maybe some of you, if you're like me, because of, the, because of the story that I've written with my life, because of the brokenness, I look at my life and say, man, I'm not sure what hope there is for me. I'm not sure what purpose I have. But the cross and at the resurrection, Jesus says, I can forgive and redeem all things. That there is nothing on the face of the planet. There is no struggle. There is no sin. There is no past. There is no history. There is no thing that you have ever done or thought that Jesus Christ cannot forgive and redeem and then call you to be a leader in his kingdom. You see, for some of you, you feel like, man, I got out of the game of having a purpose a long time ago. Not in the kingdom of God. You see, in the kingdom of God, it is full of people who have broken hearts, who have murdered, who have hurt feelings, who have stolen, who have cheated. And yet by the cross and the resurrection, they are forgiven and given brand new purpose and life. And then the very last thing that the father gives the son, and maybe the most important one is he gives them a pair of sandals. One of the major distinctions between a son and a slave in the first century was who was wearing sandals. See, sons, they wore sandals. Remember, this is the fear of this son as he comes back. He goes, take me back as a hired servant. Take me back as a slave. I don't expect any sandals. And this father says, 
you're my son. You were my son, you're still my son. By the cross and the resurrection, we are adopted into the family of God, not because of anything you and I have done, but because everything that he has done on our behalf. So you are a son or daughter of the most high God. So this week, let's not miss it. Let's not spend lots of money and forget what this is all about. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Jesus, I pray that even in our own lives, we would be reminded that you see us as valuable. That it was not us who pursued you and convinced you to love us, but it was always you who first and foremost pursued and loved us. And God, would we know that, that there's still a purpose for our lives, that there's still a reason for our existence, that you still have work to do, that you are not done with us yet. And lastly, God, for those of us that feel like we could never be a son or daughter of yours, would you hand us those sandals and remind us that because of you, because of the cross and the resurrection, We are your adopted kids and that'll never change. So Jesus, may we live this week in light of this truth. We love you, Lord. Amen. The music is loud. You can feel the beat pounding through your whole body. The people are so jammed together. You can smell the sweat on their bodies. The lights are flashing. And as the band takes center stage, the fans go wild. And there's no one that is standing still. People are jumping. People are dancing. People are screaming. People are singing. It is a concert. Long live rock and roll, man. I mean, there is nothing like a concert. It is an experience that is absolutely priceless. I mean, there's just nothing like it to be there and and just like feel it, to be a part of it. Do you know that um, whatever band is your jam, I mean, whatever music you like, I mean, a concert is something that gets people pumped up. The largest recorded gathering of people was for a Queen concert. Over two million people showed up in Sydney for a rock concert when Queen was there. It was the Monsters of Rock Festival. Now, that's a lot of people that were singing We Will Rock You all at the same time. Two million people that came together for that thing. Well, it is Palm Sunday, and on Palm Sunday, um, it is another very joyous occasion. Uh, But there was a very different kind of concert that was happening 2,000 years ago. And as Jesus came down the Mount of Olives, people gathered, people jammed together because they wanted to catch a sight of their Savior, of Jesus the Messiah. And they were shouting, they were singing, they were so joyous, they were so overwhelmed. They ripped their cloaks off and they threw it on the ground. Maybe there was moshing. I don't know. Okay, maybe not moshing. 
but there were palms. There were palms being waved. Palms as the people rejoiced and proclaimed that Jesus was their Messiah. Hosanna to God in the highest as Jesus paraded down the street. And I imagine that this, this experience was, was just priceless. I mean, can you imagine if you were there, if you were jammed in between people and everybody was, was proclaiming the praises of Jesus the Messiah? Now, we have an account in Scripture. It's found in Luke, and Luke was a physician, and he was someone that paid attention to the details. He liked to go and interview people, and then he wrote it down so that we could read it so many years later and understand what was going on. And I love reading Luke because he he puts all the fine details in it. So we we get a, a, a sense of knowing what was actually going on, sometimes the details of the sights and the sounds and the smells. So here's what we read um, in Luke. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen Jesus do. They said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd, though, They weren't shouting the same kind of thing. They said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, Jesus said, if they keep quiet, even the stones will cry out. The very stones of this earth will cry out if we do not. If we are kept silent by the majesty, by the glory, by the miraculousness of who Jesus is, the very stones of this earth will cry out. Now, on that Palm Sunday, that was 2,000 years ago, Jesus went down the Mount of Olives And the crowds were going crazy. His fans, his disciples, were all around him as he made his way down. But the Pharisees, they were ready to throw some rocks at Jesus. They were ready to use their rocks to strike out. They were ready to use their rocks to silence Jesus. You know, Jesus knew what was happening at that very moment. And he said that this was such a big deal, what was happening. This event on Palm Sunday, where Jesus was heralded as the Messiah, as God's promised one, as the chosen one who would save the people from his sin. This was such a big deal that if people did not cry out, the very rocks would cry out themselves. Now, our world is full of rocks. Rocks aren't really that special of a thing. I was just putting my garden in last weekend, and I was pulling out rocks right and left out of my garden. The rocks aren't that special. They're all around us. And do you know there's a lot of rocks actually in Scripture, too? Um, The Bible talks a lot about rocks. Um, They talk about this man Jesus as actually being the rock of our salvation, But there's other places in Scripture that talks about um, rocks as well. Um, And if these rocks could talk, um, they'd have quite a story to tell. Perhaps this rock would tell the story about a giant that needed to be slain. A giant that no one thought could be taken down. And by the faith of a little shepherd boy who believed in a mighty God, took a small rock. And by the power of his sling was able to knock him down. 
I wonder if you've got some Goliaths, if you've got some giants in your life that seem inevitable to knock down. We always run up against them, don't we? In a broken relationship, maybe a stack of bills that we have no idea how we're going to get paid. Maybe you just heard something on the news and you're overwhelmed by the sin in this world that seems to be so dark and overtake us. There are giants all around us. What are we going to do for our kid? How are we going to get a job? Giants all around us, how can they be slain? And the rocks in Scripture remind us that through faith, God is able to slay even mighty giants. Now, perhaps there would be another rock that would cry out, and this one maybe would tell the story that Jesus told as he talked about a man who built his house upon a sandy shore. Maybe the shifting culture, the shifting lies of our culture. And another man who built his house on the rock of truth, on the rock of God's foundation. And that when the storms came, one house, the house on the sand was swept away, but the house that was built on the rock remained. And it reminds us that when we build our lives, when we trust the words of Jesus to be true, when we take them deep into our souls and we let them seep out in all that we do, that God is able, God is able to do mighty things. Perhaps this would be the rock that would cry out and remind us that as Jesus stood before a woman who was being uh, convicted of some very bad choices in her life, of a woman who had messed up. She'd uh, made some poor choices and she'd gotten caught. And there were a lot of people that wanted to throw stones at her. There were a lot of stones that wanted to be thrown at her to judge her, to convict her, to tell her that she was wrong, to tell her that she was bad. And Jesus said, you know what? Those without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. And throughout scripture, we hear stones dropping. Because we are all within, with sin. We all need a savior. Perhaps we would have another stone that would tell us the story of our friend Peter, who was a disciple of Jesus, who was a friend of Jesus, who would go on to um, deny Jesus, and Jesus would restore him, and Jesus would tell him, Peter, upon this rock, upon you and the foundation of your belief, you will go and you will build the church of Jesus Christ. The future will roll out because of your faith. You will not be overcome by the sin of this world. The church will make a difference as it rises up in the name of Jesus. You see, rocks are something that provide steady, strong foundations that give us stability. Psalm 18.2 tells us this. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my rock, my stronghold. You see, on that Palm Sunday, so many years ago, the people cried out, Hosanna, with hope and belief. But soon Jesus would go to the cross and their voices would be silenced with doubt and despair. And the Pharisees, they probably thought they had won because Jesus was silenced. Perhaps the soldiers thought 
they had won because Jesus was silenced. Perhaps the Romans thought that they had won because Jesus was silenced. Perhaps the enemy thought he had won because Jesus was silenced. Because on that day of death, everyone was very, very quiet. Everyone was quiet except for the rocks. Do you know what Matthew 27, 51 tells us? It tells us when Jesus gave up his last breath and he took all of our sin upon himself, when he became the greatest sacrifice that we have ever known, that the earth shook and the rocks, they split because there had never been an event like that and there never will be one again. And when they carried Jesus to the tomb, they put him in a rock and they sealed that door shut. They thought that they could bury him. They thought that they could silence him. They thought that they could forget about him for the concert was over. But on that third day, on that third day, the stone was rolled away. That stone that was meant to silence him rolled from the grave to reveal an empty tomb, to reveal a risen Savior, the rock of our salvation, the one who sitteth at the right hand of God, who is alive. And the chorus of angels in heaven created a rock concert that is still going on. And you and I are invited to be a party for that. Because if we do not cry out, the very rocks will. And that is a rock concert we do not want to miss. God, we thank you for um, this place in scripture that reminds us of your power. We thank you that the rocks are able to cry out. Jesus, I pray that today on Palm Sunday and every day, you would equip us as men and women to cry out, to proclaim the truth of who you are, to proclaim the miracles that you have done and the way that you are still alive and still working in our lives, Jesus. Help us not to be silent. Help it not just to be the rocks cry out, but help it to be our voices as well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.